This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Great to be with you again for our latest ASX Week episode. Uh, we love these weeks. It's a real opportunity to speak to some of the best in the business and hear about the sectors and the companies that they're looking at. And today's episode is no different. We're going to be looking at a part of the market, well, a part of the world, I think, that we're really fascinated by, but still have so much to learn, and that's emerging markets. That's it. Uh, it is our pleasure to welcome Eugene Tang to Equity Mates. Eugene, welcome. Thanks, guys. Uh, happy to be here. So this is part of the ASX week here at Equity Mates Media. We've been lucky enough to partner with the ASX to bring some of the best sessions from their ASX Investor Day. Just a reminder that if you would like to catch Eugene's presentation, plus many other presentations from experts, both uh, from around the country, head to the ASX Investor Day website. There'll be a link in our show notes and you can get on demand uh, for about the next three weeks and uh, yeah, catch up on some of the presentations that you might not hear on the Equity Mates Media ASX Week. But Eugene is a client portfolio manager at Martin Curry Investment Management, which is part of Franklin Templeton, who manage $2.1 trillion and is the sixth largest asset manager in the world. So we can't wait to get stuck in. And Ren, as you said, we're starting with emerging markets. Yeah, we are. And uh, Eugene, you make the point in your ASX uh, Investor Day presentation that the world's economic order is changing. I think that's the first statement in your presentation. So you definitely start <laughs> strong. You start with a bang. Um, so for our listeners uh, who are yet to watch your presentation, can you explain uh, what you mean by this and how uh, the world economic order is changing? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. First of all, just to provide some context and why it's important to understand this. When I talk to people from overseas, whether in Asia, Europe, or America, they are constantly amazed that as Australian investors, we are based in the Asia Pacific, but very few of us invest directly in emerging markets such as Asia or even consider it. So most Aussies either buy Aussie investments 
or they buy European or US investments. And I think it's really important because essentially what we're doing when we're doing that is we're boxing with one hand tied behind our back. So if you can just keep that boxing analogy in your mind, I'll take you through what I meant. Now, so (laughs) emerging markets form a very substantial portion of the global economy. So currently it's 40% of total GDP. And the growth, the global growth is 50% coming from emerging markets. And that's what I meant by boxing with one hand tied behind your back. Now, the incredible thing is that over the next five years, that's expected to increase by 60%. The 10 biggest global economies ranked by size are forecasted to grow significantly over the next 15 to 20 years. Now, interestingly enough, by 2030, seven of the 10 largest economies in the world will be EM countries, with China and India in the top two positions, America, Indonesia, and Turkey rounding out the top five. Even right now, six of the 10 largest economies in the world are already emerging market countries. So what this means is that that it creates many exciting opportunities for investors. Eugene, what should we know about emerging markets as investors? How are they different from developed markets? And, you know, when we're thinking about the research process, are there any additional steps that we need to be considering? From an investing point of view, I think the first thing we need to get out of our minds is the old emerging market story. So in the old days, it used to be, let's sell them low value stuff like socks, clothes, shampoo, right? They used to, uh, used to have stories like Nestle, the, the old investment thesis, I'll chop up my 10,000 liters of, uh, of Milo, I'll put them into small packets and I'll sell them to Indians who can only afford that one small packet, a five cent drink. That's completely different now. But the bottom line for investors is this, is that emerging markets have changed so much that they now provide more investment opportunities at a good price. So first of all, they are better value. So a measure that we use to measure that is called relative price to book, very common measure. EM is significantly cheaper than developed markets. And not only that, but it's currently at a 20 year low. The the thing we wanna do is we want to buy when prices are low. But the problem is when prices are low, we don't feel like buying. Now, the second important thing about EM right now is that they have better growth opportunities. So a very common measure we use is return on equity. It's a measure of financial performance. And the interesting thing is that the forecast over the next 10 years is that EM growth is going to be higher than developed market growth. Now, um, back to your question about additional steps that investors should take. What we would say is, they do need to think a bit deeper for EM countries because by definition, they're still emerging. So investors need to pay attention to geopolitical issues and top-down larger picture macroeconomic issues. There's also a wide range of cultures which investors need to be aware of, but all these differences provide many opportunities. Yeah, one uh, particular thing that I think traditionally a lot of investors, uh, it sort of scared a lot of investors off emerging markets is that sovereign risk or regulatory risk, that political uncertainty that comes with some emerging market countries. Uh, How do you approach that risk and how do you try and, I guess, quantify and um, uh, manage that risk in your portfolios? Most stock pickers, um, when asked 
how do you, the question that you just asked, what they will usually say is, I'm a bottom-up stock picker, I pick the best stocks, so my stocks will drive the returns, so I don't look that much at the bigger picture, unless you're talking to a macro investor, right? Our view is that these sort of issues, geopolitical issues and macro issues, are important, especially for emerging markets, because you're covering the whole world, and we use it more as a risk mitigation framework to make sure that we can measure a Brazilian energy company with one in China, with one in Russia, and we can equalize the risk for them across the board. So then you just pick the best ones. Now, how we do this is that uh, we identify top-down and structural challenges, whether they're macroeconomic issues or geopolitical issues. And we do this from a qualitative point of view and also a quantitative point of view. So uh, qualitative meaning we we have ideas around that and we contextualize the issues and quantitative is where we put numbers next to it. Now, the quant uh, inputs are issues such as country uh, financial issues like interest rates, government institutions like transparency, ease of running a business and the ESG issues by each individual country. The contextual qualitative inputs are looking at things like what are the demographics that are driving the growth in their country and what are their geopolitical issues. Now, when we put all that together, we have one number that we use, which is called the cost of equity, i.e. how much is it costing me to invest in this country? So a riskier country, the cost of equity would be higher and your position size would be smaller. Give you an example. Um, there are incredibly good and cheap banks in Russia, but our position sizes are constrained by the tensions which are going on in Russia. If you remember a few months ago, there were 100,000 troops positioned at the Ukrainian border, and arguably right now you could say that there's a proxy conflict going on in Russia. So even though we love Russian banks, some of them, and they're really cheap and really good, we're constrained there. now. What that does is that it constrains our size of investment in each country and it allows us then to focus on the stocks instead. So sometimes when I listen to emerging markets uh, analysts talk and I hear about like what you get to look at all day, I get very jealous. Yeah. Just like seriously scouring the world for just these random opportunities that you can find yeah. anywhere. Facebook boring. <laughs> <laughs> but right. Eugene, well, I think one thing that really struck me in your presentation uh, was talking about how these emerging markets have changed and in particular, you know, the opportunities that you're seeing throw out, I guess, the old school idea of what an emerging market economy is. Can you elaborate on that and tell us what uh, some uh, emerging market indexes look like today? It's about the composition of the sectors, right? So without wanting to be rude, it's no longer your grandfather emerging markets, right? So they're not digging stuff up from the ground and they're not just manufacturing widgets, cheap widgets that they're selling to us for $2 a pop. I mean, they still do that, but it's way more than that. A lot of EM companies are now intellectual property leaders and they are global leaders. They're at the top of the pile. So I'll give you an example about their changing composition. 10 years ago, a third of emerging market economies were energy and materials. So stuff that you dig, up from the ground, and then you just manufacture like steel. Now it's less than 15%. Almost half of the emerging market economy or the benchmark is now technology, consumer, 
and communication services. In fact, if you overlaid EM with developed markets, you could you would be hard pressed to see the difference. They look very, very similar. And a lot of people don't realize that. Now, what that means for an investor is that EM, looking forward, is high return and capital light, which means you don't need to spend much money to get your high return. It's value-added economy. So previously, it was old economy, mining and manufacturing, and now they look broadly very similar to DM. Now, essentially, what that means in a nutshell for investors is that the quality of opportunity set has grown bigger in EM with cheaper, better growth and quality of opportunities. So Eugene, there are plenty of emerging markets to discuss, but of course it wouldn't be a true Equity Mates interview if we didn't pin you down and ask for just <laughs> one. So what is uh, one emerging market that is particularly exciting you at the moment? It's, it's a theme that we have never seen before in human history, and it's China. China is an incredible story, as we all know. They have seen the biggest rise in the middle class in, in human history in the last 30 years. And there's still going to be a lot of growth. And interestingly enough, keep in mind, beyond the macro issues, China is such a big country that you can pick the eyes out and just pick the best quality investments. So reflected in that stature of China is that its growth and weight in the emerging market index has doubled over the last 10 years to a third of the whole emerging market index. And within China and the asset class more broadly, they are, there are innovative and world-leading companies which have grown and emerged. So just to give you an example of this innovation, which leads to incredible products and services, you look at China and India, they have seen enormous growth in the number of science, technology, engineering, and maths graduates. It's helped to create a highly sophisticated workforce. China and India are at the top of the pile in terms of producing these STEM graduates. This leads to innovation and world-leading intellectual property. The other outcome of this is that China is number one in terms of producing the most patents uh, globally which once again generates more exciting, innovative products and solutions. Ultimately, this points to the biggest opportunity globally being EM, and crucially within that, countries like China and India and the like. Yeah, there was uh, an interesting slide in your presentation uh, that showed the amount of STEM graduates coming out of China and India and then compared that, that to some other countries. And it is, you know, they, they obviously have bigger populations to begin with, but just the absolute number of... Um, of graduates in those fields is, is pretty phenomenal. But Eugene, uh, you know, we can't talk about China uh, and investing in China without touching on some of the recent news uh, that has sort of been capturing headlines around the world and definitely in Australia. Um, two things really come to mind, uh, some of the tech uh, regulation that we've seen and then also Evergrande and, um, and you know, the, the effect that that will have on the Chinese real estate market and the broader economy. Let, let's start with the tech uh, regulation. How do you think about the crackdown on uh, gaming and um, you know some of these other businesses? How, I guess, do you think this will play out over the long term? Yep, so we've been following this very closely, of course, as investors in the region. And uh, none of this has actually surprised us. The, the bit that was uncertain was the timing and, and the specifics of what the Chinese government was going to do. But keep in mind, so first of all, as we know, China's regulatory model is distinct from Europe and the US. 
It's a top-down state-coordinated economy, which places a lot of responsibility on the central government. So the population expects the government to improve their lives, basically. And these policies have been very successful in uh, propelling the Chinese uh, people's economic growth. And it's lifted hundreds of millions out of poverty over the last few decades. What that's actually done, though, is that the population now has very high expectations and different expectations today than even a decade ago. And the party's objectives have evolved to reflect this. So what the Chinese government is promoting is social fairness in Chinese society and common prosperity for its population. Now, what that means is that they have three key focuses, anti-monopoly, number two, payment regulation, and number three, data privacy and protection. Now, the interesting thing is these are three key areas which governments all around the world are grappling with. It's just that the Chinese government is doing it in a much more uh, top-down kind of way. Now, in the long run, we think that good companies will actually be more sustainable in terms of their business practices at the industry level. And for the more responsible operators within each industry, this is likely to improve their competitive advantage and actually increase or hasten the exit of unscrupulous players. Now, what it does, though, in the short to medium term is that uncertainty and volatility increases. But that's actually when you pick up good value investments. Now, in a nutshell, what I'm trying to say is that these tech companies are basically too big for governments, not just in China, but globally to ignore. So then if we turn to the other, I guess, uh, China-related issue that's captured headlines, um, Evergrande, the, one of the biggest Chinese property developers, uh, is in a bit of debt trouble and people are worried that that could have spillover effects uh, to China's economy and potentially even to the world economy. Uh, how do you assess uh, that issue and does it you know, change your thinking about, I guess, the macro situation in China at all? Yep. So what it's done is it's, and we've known this was uh, an issue for a long time. So first of all, we do not hold real estate uh, companies within our portfolio, our emerging market portfolio, because we just don't think the dynamics of those uh, those companies within emerging markets is good, especially developers. And Evergrande was well known as one of those that you want to stay away from. So we focus a lot of this on of a lot of our research on what is the impact of uh, what's happening to Evergrande on our portfolio. So first of all, no exposure to Evergrande or any other Chinese property company. Uh, and the concerns in the real estate sector in China are driven by the situation in Evergrande. But we do, having said that, we do have industry exposure via financial and utilities holdings within the portfolio, but they're incredibly small. Our portfolio has not been affected. And given that these exposures are so small, we do not expect a material impact on our portfolio. Now, the, the bigger issue is that this is going to be a shock for US dollar offshore bond investors is essentially foreign investors who invest in Chinese bonds in US dollars because Evergrande is 10% of that market. And we're already seeing the shocks there. It's essentially not great, not just for Chinese bonds, but for emerging market bonds. And it's a bit of a multi-asset class shock in that sense. So what I'm trying to say is that the cash flow from the developers 
will be, uh, for want of a better word, encouraged by the Chinese government. So it will happen to first go to pay supplier creditors, which is what we call the unfunded debt, to prevent mortgage delinquencies, and then the onshore loan holders, so Chinese bond investors. So very likely, we believe, offshore bond investors will get very little recoveries, and they're basically going to be last in line. But essentially, we do not view this as a likely systemic catastrophic event for the Chinese economy. So Eugene, we're going to take a closer look at one of the opportunities uh, that's exciting you at the moment, electric vehicles. Uh, But before we do, we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So Eugene, let's do a bit of a sector deep dive. Uh, in your presentation, you discussed the opportunity around electric vehicles uh, and you presented your preferred approach to actually play this trend. Can you explain what segment of the EV supply chain you're currently looking at? Yep, so just to give some context around that, I'm gonna use the example of uh, the gold rush in San Francisco in 1881, because that's when we were- I know it well, I know it well. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll tell you why that's important, right? So 1881, little accounting firm in Edinburgh, Martin Curry, our clients ask us, hey, can you invest our money? And we want growth. So we went to the exciting emerging market then, which was the United States. We then invested in the gold rush. Now, when there's a gold rush, what does everyone do? They go dig gold, right? But how many people do you know that made a lot of money from digging gold? Not many. So what we did instead was we went to other parts of the value chain. We invested our clients' money in the transcontinental railroad. And it's the same thing here. We're looking at other parts of the market rather than just cars or rather than just digging up lithium. In our view, the EV supply chain batteries are highly exciting. And this is the reason why. The opportunity is developing because the auto industry is going through rapid and tremendous change. Now, just to give you an idea, the global auto industry is very mature. It's a 100-year-old industry with sales of roughly 100 million-plus units of cars per year. All of that is changing right now before our eyes, not just because of what governments are doing, but also because of demand. I'm sure if if you talk to most of your mates, if they could buy a Tesla at a reasonable price, most people would be happy to have one. Now, within that industry, Electric vehicles are forecast to increase from 2 million a year to 10 million a year and beyond. Batteries are the key value add within that. A Tesla car, the cost of it is 40% the battery. So auto component uh, manufacturers generally have created more value than the actual auto manufacturers. We want the makers of this key intellectual property. And the beauty of it is, there is no need to pick a specific car manufacturer to win. The, car, the battery manufacturers have a very diversified order book from all the car manufacturers, and there are six 
battery manufacturers in the world who control 80% of the market and five of them are in emerging markets. Yeah. So in your presentation, you spoke about the major suppliers. Um, I guess, you know, it's interesting to say most of them are focused in develop, uh, emerging markets. Um, when you think about car makers, you think about, you know, the Teslas, the Fords, the General Motors in the States, or, you know, the uh, Mercedes and BMWs and stuff in Europe. But um, it's interesting, interesting to see this key component is focused in emerging markets. Why is that the case? Yeah, it's, it's a combination of historic development and ownership of intellectual property and low-cost manufacturing. Just to give you a bit of context around that by what I mean is that China has about 80% of the world's battery factories currently, right? They have 93 factories. America has four. Not, not 40, four. And China is expected to build over the next five years another 40-plus factories. America is expected to ramp up its uh, battery manufacturing factories by more than 100%. So they're going to grow to 10. (laughs) And the EU will have 17. So that's the context. Now, the big question is why? And I I put it down to two words, opportunity and focus. So emerging markets have had major advantages historically, such as cheaper labor. So that allows them to dominate manufacturing industries. They have lithium reserves which then leaves, leads to greater lithium production. So to give you an example, China's production of lithium in 2018 was 800 metric tons. That is eight, 10 times more than America's production. And China's lithium reserves is 1 million metric tons. That is 30 times more than America's reserves. Interesting. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. So... Uh, you mentioned there were six companies uh, in this sort of that, that owned 80% of the market and of this sort of key, I guess, supplier to the EV industry. Of those six, uh, are there any that you particularly like or are you investing in all six? So we invest in a, a few of them and also within the ecosystem. So let me just um, take you through that. If you uh, If you look at it, there are enormous opportunities within the whole ecosystem and the supply chain. And the theme is expressed as follows. We have battery manufacturers in China and Korea. So Korea would be Samsung SDI, LG Chem. China, we have CATL, Minth, and Wusi Lead. We also have a copper manufacturer because copper is crucial to EV manufacturing in Chile. And we have a Taiwanese charging station business called Delta Electronics. Now, that one's really interesting. We know currently that people think, if I've got an EV, I've got to charge it, right? So even at the best charges, like going to the Tesla ones, you have to wait for about half an hour. What they do in Taiwan, which is really cool, and I can't wait until we can have it here, is you go to, you subscribe to a monthly subscription. You go to what looks like a Australia Post PO box, you open your vehicle, like your electric scooter, you take out the battery, you use your app to open whichever door opens up, it opens up and you just swap your battery. So it takes you one or two minutes, you don't pay anyone, you don't talk to anyone, and it's so clean. And you swap your battery and off you go. That's cool. That is cool. Eugene, how are these businesses building sustainable competitive advantages in this space? Um, Or or is there a risk that at some point batteries will just become commodities over time and 
It would just be a yeah supply demand situation. So the answer is uh, yes, they will become cheaper because of scale, but it's, it's going to benefit the battery companies. And let me explain what I mean by that. The simple answer is, and I'll use the phone analogy for this, right? If the phone that you have blew up in your pocket, that would be a bad thing, wouldn't it? You could say that. <laughs> Look, it wouldn't be ideal. <laughs> and it's the same situation with a car. What you do not want is your car battery to blow up because that would be disastrous. So what I'm saying is that the six biggest car manufacturers, battery manufacturers, are likely to retain their uh, leadership because if you're a car manufacturer, you do not want to outsource your batteries to a startup. You need someone who has proven over decades that their batteries do not blow up. That is step number one that is really, really crucial. If you can't prove that, as a startup, and it's going to be very, very difficult for a startup to prove that, it's unlikely that you're going to get customers. Mm. Now, in terms of sustainability, you've got that piece. Plus, we expect batteries to be commoditized in the sense that they're going to become cheaper because of scale. But all that does is it increases the volume of sales for the battery manufacturers. And the beauty of it right now is that the battery manufacturers has, have multiple times more orders than they can fulfill. So their biggest risk is not being commoditized. Their biggest risk is, am I able to produce enough batteries, build enough factories to produce enough batteries over the next several years? So Eugene, before we move to our final three questions, I just want to ask one about you know how retail investors should think about getting access to a lot of these companies that you've spoken about or emerging markets more broadly, because we spoke at the top about, you know, the regulatory risk, sovereign risk that comes with uh, investing in emerging markets and how, you know, over time uh, the indexes have changed quite considerably and I'm sure it's only going to change considerably over the next sort of decade or so. So for those that have just joined uh, Equity Mates and, and are listening to this and feeling like they don't know where to start, what sort of advice would you have? There's a there's a few ways of looking at it, and the answer is it depends. And what I mean by that, it depends on what you you want as an investor and what kind of investor you are. So if you are a person who loves digging through the weeds and you spend all your time thinking about investing, about money, about super, then you could buy the stocks yourself. You can do that now via your Comsec account and many other online brokers. The thing you need to watch out for are you've got taxation issues, you've got um, currency issues, macroeconomic issues, language barriers, all sorts of stuff like that, but it's doable. But the risk is much higher if you buy the shares directly yourself. Now, in terms of your options, in terms of uh, listed vehicles, you can then look at ETFs. And there are two kinds of ETFs. You have the index-hugging ETFs, which you can use, and they, there are many brands that do that, like Vanguard and iShares, which is owned by BlackRock, or you can use an active ETF like ourselves. So we have an ETF, and here's a plug for ours, stock code <laughs> EMMG. So stock code EMMG, it's based on the managed fund. The managed fund has been running successfully for more than 10 years, and the fee is very reasonable. 
and we have produced quite good outcomes very successfully for investors over that 10 year plus period so the long answer to your short question is you need to have a think about what kind of investor you are Well, Eugene, I appreciate that you gave uh, our listeners all the options rather than just giving uh, uh, your uh, your ETF and your managed fund a plug, uh, but we will give it another plug. If people want to check it out, the ticker code was EMMG. Yes. Yeah, nice. Um, Actually, just just a quick one on the on the on our emerging market team, right? They currently manage $10 billion around the world for pension clients all around the world, industry super funds in Australia, pension clients in the US, retail investors globally. The interesting thing about this team is they do not invest anything else. All they do is invest in this strategy and every single client, whether you are a super fund, a pension fund in America or a retail investor in EMMG, you all get exactly the same portfolio. Nice. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, so Eugene, we love to, uh, finish with the same final three questions, uh, for every expert investor we get on the show. Uh, but before we do, uh, we'll remind our audience that if they want to hear more from Eugene or any of the other experts that spoke at the ASX investor day, uh, they can head over to the ASX's website. Uh, the link will be in the show notes, uh, and they can watch all of those presentations for free. So, uh, jump over and, uh, learn more from some of the experts that the ASX got together. Uh, but Eugene, uh, the first of the final three questions we like to ask is, uh, do you have any books that you consider must read? Now, I, I have been through your website a little bit. I did see the book section and every, there are very, very good investment books there. So I'm not going to recommend an investment book, but I'm going to recommend a book that my year 12 economics teacher said you need to read if you want to understand economics and finance because without this book you will not understand why things are happening the way they're happening and this is very crucial especially for emerging markets it's a book written by jonathan lynn and anthony jay and it's called yes minister there's a book for it there are two tv series and there's an audiobook. I checked on Amazon the other day. You can get them all for less than $10, $20 each. Wow. TV series. That's up my alley. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, now, the reason, so if you don't feel like reading the book, watch the series. And the reason why this book is important is because it explains to you geopolitical risk and why governments do the things they do. And investors live within that ecosystem. So it's really important to understand why things are happening the way they are. Nice one. Nice. Okay, great, great recommendation and appreciate the plug for our website as well. We should, uh, we should get more people to do that. Um, the second question uh, we like to ask, uh, forget valuation, uh, you know, or how good an investment it is today, uh, just purely looking at the company and its fundamentals. Uh, what's the best company you've ever come across? Look, there, there's so many good companies. So I had to pick one which was very specific to the COVID-19 pandemic and all our lives. And this would impact every person, I guarantee, who listens to this podcast. So we've been through such a tumultuous period because of the pandemics with flow and impacts such as the shift of the consumer away from services to goods and the subsequent strain on supply chains. 
So I've picked a stock which is one of our biggest holdings. Actually, it's our biggest holding right now. It's crucial to so many items which are integral to our lives, from our phones to our cars to the items in our kitchen to the TV, the PlayStations and our entertainment rooms. It's called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company or TSMC. It's the world's largest semiconductor manufacturer. Now, here's the beautiful thing. This was once such a low value, low profit business that almost the whole world outsourced to them, right? No one wants to manufacture computer chips. You're just basically melting sand and glass and putting it back into computer chips. Very boring part of the value chain. Now, the companies and countries were happy to outsource this over the last 30 years to a little factory in sleepy Taiwan, which has now become the bottleneck for products and services for companies, pretty much all the major computer chip manufacturers in the world. So whether you're Apple, ARM, AMD, NVIDIA, all their chips are manufactured by TSMC. Now, here's the interesting thing. TSMC now is so far ahead that no one is going to catch up to them for a long, long time. Their chips now are manufactured to the size of two nanometers. To give you some context, one nanometer is one billionth of a meter. A strand of human hair is 2.5 nanometers. Chinese manufacturers right now can only manufacture to 20-something nanometers. So they are multiple generations behind. TSMC has 53% of the world's market share of computer chip manufacturing. The next closest is not even close. It's Samsung with 17%. Now, the, other, the final thing that gets me very excited about TSMC is the financial part. So over the next two years, Earnings per share growth of 15 to 20%. Return on equity, which is your profit of 20%. That's on 27%, I'm sorry. That's almost double of what Warren Buffett looks for in companies that he wants to invest in. And the, the fascinating thing about this is these kinds of opportunities are unique to emerging markets. You cannot get them in America and you definitely cannot get them in Australia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I, I was about to say, it's hard to sum up just how good a business TSMC has been. But Eugene, I think you did a pretty good job of uh, of summing it up and talking about how transformational it has been. It is a fascinating business story to to I guess have watched unfold or to look back and reflect on it, but also to continue watching it just power ahead. So. Eugene, final question. Um, if you think back to your earlier days, just starting out in the industry, just uh, you know, learning the the skills of investing, uh, what advice would you have for your younger self? I've got three pieces of advice, but to give you a bit of context, um, I am very risk adverse which is interesting because we we invest in emerging markets, <laughs> but I, I I'm very risk adverse, so. The three uh, pieces of advice I would give to my younger self, number one, know yourself better. The emotional part of investing is very, very important. Number two, know the world better. When I think back to when I was younger, um, maybe it's part of being younger where we think we know everything and we're very confident, but there's so many things that we don't know. And as you get older, you start to, to realize that. So knowing the world better, number two, is really important. 
And number three, once you know yourself better and you know the world better, take more calculated risks. Mm, love it. Love that. Yeah, great way to finish, Eugene. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. We love chatting about emerging markets. It's been a thematic that we've touched on a fair bit this year, and there's no doubt there is serious opportunity for uh, those that can get access and get involved in it. So, yeah, you know, it's been a fascinating interview and we appreciate your time. So thank you very much. Great. Thanks for your time, guys. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you. So drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equity Mates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equitymates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.